I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and this is okay let me tell you why you're wrong uh today we've got a topic that i know i've been looking forward to talking about it's a uh, subject that i spent a fair amount of my academic career writing about and even more my personal life boring friends and family with i've talked before about how i've been told that i have a kind of a rigidly darwinian view on economics and if you've been listening for a while, I'm sure that you've heard that view come out. I try to avoid most bias in this podcast, preferring to leave political arguments for political podcasts, but also pushing the idea that divisions between schools of economics are, are usually over-exaggerated. With few exceptions, all economists of note are correct, given the assumptions that they use to frame their, uh, their arguments. And there's no reason that the theories of Keynes can't coexist with the theories of Friedman. But avoiding bias doesn't mean that I can't have a preference. And today, I get to touch on one of the key ideas put forth by one of my favorite economists of all time, Joseph Schumpeter. Schumpeter was born in Austria in 1883. After serving for a, a short time as Austria's finance minister, he taught at the University of Bonn. Uh, then in 1932, he moved to the United States to escape the Nazis. He got a job teaching at Harvard and spent his career teaching, writing, and honing his theories. He's quoted as saying that his aspirations in life were to be the greatest economist, lover, and horseman the world had ever seen, though he would often add that he was still working on the horsemanship. Schumpeter was a prolific writer, 
but is best known for uh, two of his works, Business Cycles, a theoretical, historical, and statistical analysis of the capitalistic process, written in 1939. Again, like Smith, had a real knack for uh, quippy titles. And uh, his uh, other book, uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, written in 1942. And this is how we seamlessly transition into today's topic, because what we're going to cover is probably the most famous and impactful idea that Joseph Schumpeter gave us, which is the idea of creative destruction. Yeah. If it's at all possible uh, for an economist to be considered metal, uh, then Joseph Schumpeter is the Pantera of economists. So what is creative destruction, you may be asking? And why is it at all something that I should know about? Fair questions. But to answer them, I'm going to need to rewind back a little ways and talk for a little bit about that least funny of all the Marx Brothers, Karl Marx. So, regardless of your political or economic views, Karl Marx is a pretty big deal in economics. In the U.S., anyway, old Karl tends to be viewed as a, as a kind of boogeyman. Uh, it's not quite an accurate portrayal, but given the fact that the U.S. spent 40 years eyeball to eyeball with the Soviet Union, it's understandable that the philosophical patron saint of communism comes with his own set of baggage. But while we may conceive of Marx as a, a, a kind of fiery, dangerous revolutionary, bellowing anti-bourgeoisie rhetoric and plotting the violent overthrow of baseball, mom, and apple pie, that's not an accurate portrayal of his works and the role that he plays in <clears throat> economic theory as a whole. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Karl Marx has never seemed to me like the kind of person I'd want to hang out with. I'd imagine that if you met him for dinner, he'd show up late and then talk the restaurant staff into overthrowing the management before the salads arrived. And I also want to be clear that by saying that Karl Marx made some important contributions to economic thinking doesn't mean that I agree with his philosophy. For one thing, the idea of value being determined solely by the effort of the labor makes no sense to me. I won't dive too deeply into it here, because I have plans on doing a much more expansive look at Marx and his ideas in a later episode. But to give you all the gist of it, if you read the works of Marx, his, his major contribution, at least as far as I'm concerned, comes from his criticism of capitalism. Most of what he has to say about the problems that capitalism can create is right on the money. Capitalism isn't a perfect system, and there are inevitable issues that come from it. But it's it, to me, it's kind of like what Winston, uh, that Winston Churchill quote about democracy, where he says that democracy is the worst system for government, except for all the others. Marx's criticism of, of capitalism is important, because it is very well thought out. Now, where I and most people depart from Marx 
is when it comes to what to do about those problems. Marx's solution to the problem of capitalism was to create a different system, namely Marxism, or what can be called a form of socialism, and of course what would eventually get transformed into communism. Now the distinctions between those three are important, but we will leave that for a future episode. In our broad brush approach here, I, I'm okay with conflating the three. So there's an obvious problem when it comes to Karl Marx's approach to solving the inequalities of, of capitalism in that he spends a considerable amount of his writings railing against corporatism and the creation of monopolies. And this is entirely justified. We, we've talked about the, the problems, uh, the very real and detrimental economic problems that come from monopolies on this podcast. Uh, if you look at the economy that Marx was living in during his time, there was a significant corruption and monopolization problem. Now, my thing here is that Marx sought to solve the problem of monopolization, power being held in the hands of only a few corporations, by replacing them with essentially socialism, power being held in the hands of one entity. It's just a bigger monopoly. Marx was right in identifying the problem, but his solution was to push the needle in the exact wrong direction. Again, we'll save the more elaborate discussion of Marx for another time. The reason I've been talking about him here is not because of his solution to the problem of capitalism, but rather because of his pointing out of those problems in the first place. Because despite how wrong I may think Marx was with socialism, we shouldn't make the mistake of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Given the collapse of the Soviet Union and the problems that crop up whenever Marx is invoked into a political system, it's easy to simply dismiss everything that he said as the, the ravings of a crank. But that's not really a good idea. As I said, Marx made some very salient points when it came to the, the social problems that can be created by capitalism. The better approach would be to look at Marx's critique and say, okay, fair point, so how do we solve that problem without a proletariat revolution? And this is what brings us back to Schumpeter, because that's kind of just what he, exactly what he did. Uh, Schumpeter looked at the works of Karl Marx and started to integrate some of those ideas into his own economic theories. And again, don't get the wrong idea, Schumpeter was a lifelong critic of socialism, but he took Marx seriously. And as I've been saying, that's an important thing to do. Now, there are ways of reading Schumpeter where, on the face, it looks like he's conceding to the necessity of socialism, and that, in itself, is yet another topic we could cover in a future episode. I do plan on covering the entirety of his book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, in excruciating detail sometime in the future. Uh, but what's important for our topic today is that over the years of, of wrestling with the problems that Marx pointed out, Schumpeter came to the idea that one of the drivers of a capitalist economy was the constant tearing down of the old to be replaced by the new. 
or what Schumpeter would call creative destruction. Okay, so there's a long digression on Marx, and, and I still haven't fully defined creative destruction, so let me do that now. So, creative destruction was a term coined and popularized by Schumpeter in the book Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy to describe what he felt was the primary driver of economic growth. In its most basic forms, it, it, it goes like this. Consistent with Marx's criticisms, a, a capitalist market will trend towards stagnation, brought on largely by monopolization and other anti-competitive behaviors. However, according to Schumpeter, where Marx went wrong was to imagine this economy in, in a kind of steady state, where a, a permanent version of this uh, oppressive capitalism was uh, sustainable. Not so, says Schumpeter, because the market, the, the big market, is ever-changing. The profits brought in under monopolization will only serve to incentivize entrepreneurs to enter the market, and new technology will constantly create new markets. These new emerging markets will rise to challenge the established monopolies, and since a monopolist isn't really prepared for aggressive competition, they will fail. And, and keep uh, to, they'll fail to keep up and the old guard will collapse and be replaced by the new. Essentially, it's, it's a constant process of old markets needing to be destroyed in order for new markets to emerge. You can think of it kind of like the policy of the National Park Service for allowing forest fires to, to run their course. We talked about this uh, back in uh, the episode on moral hazard. Uh, conservationists have discovered that by suppressing forest fires, it really only leads to for future forest fires becoming more destructive and harder to contain. Because by preventing them entirely, the dead wood never gets cleared away, so it just builds up. Also, without an occasional fire to clear away large, old trees... Newer plant growth has a harder time establishing itself. But when a fire rolls through an area, that old growth is burned away, and it opens things up for new trees and plants to flourish. Creative destruction works the same way. In order for new businesses and new markets to flourish, thus creating the kind of economic growth that we want, the old businesses and old markets have to be allowed to die. As Schumpeter put it, <clears throat> quote, The opening up of new markets, foreign or domestic, and the organizational development from the craft shop and factory to such concerns as U.S. Steel illustrate the process of industrial mutation that incessantly revolutionizes the economic structure from within, incessantly destroying the old one, incessantly creating a new one, this process of creative destruction is the essential fact about capitalism. It is what capitalism consists in and what every capitalist concern has got to live in. So this was Schumpeter's response to Marx, which, which is why I did that whole introductory thing. Uh, he was saying that the ills and excesses of capitalism were correctly observed. 
but that the solution wasn't to tear the whole thing down, but rather to let it run its course. The solution to the problem of capitalism comes from capitalism. So, you may ask, that all seems fine and good. And it comes with a neat analogy about forest fires. But can you point to a single example of this actually happening? Well, like all questions I ask myself on uh, my own podcast, oh yes, I can. Uh, so let's have some fun with this. Now, the oldest chestnut of an example of, of this kind of thing, and it's, it's not precisely what I would call uh, the perfect version of creative destruction, but I'll, I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but it serves as a starting point, and it's the uh, it's the advent of the automobile. Since the dawn of human civilization, we've relied on horses to get where we're going. Uh, once we you know got past just walking, uh, we're either going on horseback or through horse-drawn means. Then one day in 1885, Carl Benz created the first production model automobile. Other people had beat him to the concept of the car, but he gets credited with making the first version ready for large-scale production. And the market for horse carriages started its slow collapse. Now, I want to expand a bit on this one because there are some points to take note of here. So, I talk about creative destruction like it's a good thing. I even gave it a pretty metal riff there. Uh, and... It is, in fact, a good thing. But the thing you have to keep in mind about creative destruction is that it is, well, destructive. When the Benz Patton motor cars started appearing on the streets, or when the Model Ts started rolling off the line, the people involved in the horse carriage in industry didn't see that and throw up their hands and say, well, I guess that's the end of us. No. There was an active push against this new horseless carriage, uh, especially in the rural areas where the horses for the horsed carriages were bred and raised. Uh, there's some pretty spectacular stories from those early days of the automobile and some pretty spectacular examples of actively sabotaging early motorists. Uh, a favorite of mine is a suggestion highlighted by W.S. Gilbert uh, when he wrote... Uh, in response to a letter, quote, <clears throat> Sir, I am delighted with the suggestion made by your spirited correspondent, Sir Ralph Payne Galway, that all pedestrians shall be legally empowered to discharge shotguns, the size of the shot to be humanely restricted to number eight or number nine, at all motorists who may appear to them to be driving to the common danger. Not only would this provide a speedy and effective punishment for the erring motorist, but it would also supply the dwellers on popular high roads with a comfortable increase of income. Motor shooting for a single gun would appeal strongly to the sporting instincts of the true Britain and would provide ample compensation to the proprietors of eligible roadside properties for the intolerable annoyance caused by the enemies of mankind. Yeah, apparently motorists were the enemies of mankind. So, because the old market didn't intend to simply concede to the new, the old market would have to be destroyed. And by the time Henry Ford's Model Ts were hitting the road in 1913, 
most opposition to them had largely vanished in favor of this new, better technology. But therein lies the consequence of creative destruction, in that the horse carriage industry had to resist and lose. That means that people who worked in the carriage business lost their jobs. Carriage manufacturing companies went out of business. A whole market was annihilated over the course of about 30 years. Looking at it in the greater historical perspective, we can say, well, good, it needed to die out. But we have to remember that we might feel differently if the eye of creative destruction fell on whatever industry we were working in. Again, I bring this up for your intellectual consideration, not because I feel that it's a valid argument against creative destruction. It isn't. The broad historical view is the correct one to have, but we should never become so detached from the ground truth of a market that we forget the human costs that add up during transitionary moments like this. And I bring it up because I think the sword cuts both ways. Recognizing that there was a human cost to the transition from horse-drawn carriages to automobiles can give us sympathy for those people who personally suffered during that transition and help us to explain some of the people's opposition to the change. But it can also serve to temper our sympathy towards people who are currently experiencing the costs associated with creative destruction and remind us that in order for advancement to occur, the old ways have to be allowed to die. Now, I said that the rise of the automobile wasn't precisely what Schumpeter was talking about. So, so let me elaborate on this. It is an example of creative destruction, but it's not quite the perfect example of it. And this is probably more my opinion than established doctrine, because in the more perfect example, the industry that dies was the one that brought about the conditions for its own demise. A more precise example, to me, uh, might be that of Polaroid. Uh, for those listeners too young to remember, the Polaroid company revolutionized the photography industry by creating the instant camera, uh, actually back in the late 50s, uh, which would take a picture and instantly spit out that picture for you without having to take the film in for developing. It was incredible. You take a picture and you had it right away. Or at least you had it after a few seconds of flapping the picture in a method that did absolutely nothing to improve the development of that picture, but we all did it anyway. Polaroid did colossal business and forced every other photography company to chase them. And then they kind of rested on their laurels and stopped any really major innovation. The irony, and again, by textbook definitions, creative destruction doesn't require irony, but I personally like mine with a big dollop of it. But the irony was that Polaroid created a new demand in the minds of the consumers, that of being able to take a picture and just have it right away without the hassle and expense of taking it in to be developed. They themselves served a major blow to the market for developing film and and cameras that required professional development. But by creating that new demand, 
and then not continuing to serve it as it mutated and changed, Polaroid spelled its own doom. Once you get to the 1990s and the early 2000s, other companies, inspired by the demand for instant photography, created the first digital cameras, which not only served the consumer demand, but improved on it. Now, you could get your pictures instantly, check them to see how they looked, edit them in camera, discard ones you didn't like, print them out on your home printer, and you never had to buy film again. It was unquestionably a better product, and, and Polaroid just couldn't or wouldn't keep up. So naturally, in 2001, and then again in 2008, they had to declare bankruptcy. There's still technically a Polaroid corporation out there today, but it's really just the acquired assets of the old one that went out of business. The Polaroid camera may give us a little twinge of nostalgia, but the digital camera was truly a better product, and we're all better off for letting Polaroid go. But remember that with two bankruptcies, shareholders lost money, current employees lost their jobs, and former employees lost their pensions. Creative destruction is not without very real consequences. Here, in 2018, we see examples of creative destruction all around us. If, if you read a financial news article that talks about the, again, what a fill-in-the-blank effect, uh, you see it all the time, uh, the Amazon effect, the Uber effect, the Netflix effect, all of those are just really talking about creative destruction. Amazon is seen as the the harbinger of doom for any market that it casts its eye towards. And there's no shortage of people out there that bemoan the decline of brick-and-mortar stores. But the fact is that brick-and-mortar stores have had a stranglehold on our consumer dollars since the invention of bricks and mortar, and they largely took that for granted. So much so that they let this insignificant little online bookseller come in and completely upend the market. Once Jeff Bezos realized that you can sell and ship, if you can sell and ship books to people, then you can sell and ship anything. He suddenly had that holy grail of capitalism on his hands. He had a better product. Not the item you're buying, that's the same, but rather the way that you're buying it. How many times have you gone to a brick and mortar store and been unable to find what, you're, what you want? And when you ask an employee, you get that all too unsatisfying of an answer of, well, whatever we've got, it's on the shelf. You know who doesn't say that? Amazon. Amazon's answer is, yes, we have that and we can have it to you in two days. Or if we don't have that, we'll find it and we'll have it to you in two days. That's a better product. It has reset the bar for quality and convenience and the other players in the market can now either adapt to meet that new standard or fade away into a haze of nostalgia. We've already seen some retailers, both large and small, trying to adapt, like Walmart. And we've already seen some die off, like Sears and Toys R Us. But what I'm interested to see is whether or not Amazon has sowed the seeds of its own downfall. After all, because of the standard that Amazon has set, now every product is available for online purchase. 
Even small at-home businesses offer two-day shipping. Amazon may dominate the market, and they've shown themselves to be pretty adaptable, but by opening up the doors to democratizing the retail market through online sales, they may face competition in the future, not from one large rival, but from thousands of small ones. Rideshare services get tagged with the same effect, and we're watching a, a rapid form of creative destruction take place as a result. Uber came along and offered a better product than traditional taxicabs. Taxis were heavily regulated and controlled, and there were huge barriers to entry put up which prevented any kind of real competition. What it gave us was a baseline level of service and quality for the experience of taking a cab, with no real incentive on the part of the cab companies to improve their product. But then Uber hit the market, and suddenly I could order and pay for a ride on my phone. And I could see how far the car was from me. And it was cheaper. It was a better product. I think, tragically, for the cab companies, it, it seems like most of them have decided to fight this battle in the courts rather than in the marketplace. Which will probably spell the end of the cab companies rather than the end of the rideshare concept. The only real option for survival against the wave of creative destruction is to adapt. You have to adapt to the new circumstances in the market. Once the better product idea is out of the bottle, there's no putting it back. And interestingly enough, Uber has already found itself on shaky ground as some of their policies are less than ideal for their drivers which has opened the door for other rideshare companies like Lyft to come along and offer a better version themselves. Then, of course, there's Netflix. And I've covered this pretty extensively already in my uh, episode about the future of home entertainment. Again, they offered a better product. And we're watching the old way of things crumble and fall while newer, better versions keep popping up. This is all creative destruction at work. Now, Schumpeter did see an issue with all of this. While he viewed creative destruction as both natural and necessary, he felt that there was a good chance that this process would eventually lead to the collapse of capitalism as a whole. After all, the destructive part of creative destruction leaves a lot of victims of, of progress in its wake. As firms and whole industries fall, a lot of people lose their jobs and, and suffer while new businesses spring up and, and start to grow. Schumpeter felt that there's a good chance that this kind of mm, mass collateral damage would lead to those people disaffected by the process, albeit temporarily, but that it would lead to them uh, supporting policies and voting for politicians who, who would put forward policies themselves that would have protected them and their industry. That would then lead to a rise in socialism, or at least more socialistic economies. What I find really striking about that train of logic is that, while it, while it makes sense, it may not be as big of a concern in our modern context. 
The element to that process that I don't think Schumpeter would have or, or even could have accounted for was that while creative destruction continues to create better products and better technologies, the process naturally speeds up and increases at or near exponential levels. Schumpeter died in 1950, and so he would have been 15 years shy of reading a paper by Gordon Moore, which coined the idea of Moore's Law, wherein technological advancement essentially doubles every two years. Now, there's a whole different debate over the strict efficacy of Moore's Law, but I, I think that the general idea that technological advancement leads to more rapid future technological advancement I think that would have given Schumpeter some pause. What I mean is that Schumpeter's, it wasn't a prediction so much as an observation that the fallout of creative destruction might lead to the abandonment of capitalism as an economic system relies on there being a, a lull between the collapse of the old and the rise of the new. But with new advancements making it easier for the next advancement, and that advancement making the next one easier, and so on and so on, the time it takes for new entrants to fill the creative destruction vacuum goes down. And this is less an established fact and, and, and more of an opening I'm offering for some open debate. Uh, but I think that it's possible that the more rapid advancements could close the fallout gap and prevent the slide away from capitalism. Just like creative destruction was an internal solution to the flaws of capitalism, exponential technological growth may internally solve the issue created by creative destruction. Discuss. I'll see you guys on the uh, Facebook group. I've been pretty clear, but in, in case you're not sure by this point in the episode, I'm a fan of Joseph Schumpeter. Now, I don't think that he's the only economist that's right, and come on, that's not how economics works. As something much closer to a science, one theory isn't right to the exclusion of all the others. Joseph Schumpeter was, in my opinion, right about this aspect of economics, just as any other economist of note is largely right about their specific aspect. Most economic theories and ideas don't actually conflict with each other, but rather add to and modify each other. But interesting as it may be, you might be wondering why I picked this topic. Was I just itching to talk about an economist that I really like? Well, yeah, a little, but, you know, hey, it's my podcast. But I will say there, there's a bit more to my method than that. You see... Schumpeter's writings, and, and specifically the idea of creative destruction, are hugely important to our everyday lives. And if technological advancement continues at such a rapidly increasing pace, this will become an issue more and more in the years to come. What I would like all of you listening to take away from this, aside from the fact that Joseph Schumpeter is the most metal of all economists, is the idea of the absolute necessity of creative destruction in order for capitalism to work. 
and and I hammer that idea all through this episode because far too often I will see in, in, in articles or news reports or even just in conversations with people the, the mourning of businesses and industries that are collapsing and failing. And that mourning is counterproductive. Now, if it was just an, oh, it's too bad, we don't have a fill-in-the-blank anymore, it wouldn't concern me. What makes me a little uneasy is that there are a significant number of people who seem to want to push for protections against the tide of creative destruction. And that's a problem. Like I covered here in the episode, one, such efforts will eventually fail because you can't fight against a better idea or a better product. They will have their day, eventually, no matter what you do. But the concern is that in trying to protect dying industries, we expend a lot of resources to achieve very little in the end. And it's not that I don't understand the instinct to do that kind of thing. I I do. Creative destruction is a, a messy and ugly process. People lose their jobs, all because they work in an industry that, through no fault of their own, is on the decline. That can be brutal. It has very real consequences. And even though we may know that in the long run, this is all very necessary to our advancement as a society and as an economy, we can't forget that in the short run, it causes very real problems that should be addressed and potentially compensated for. Speaking personally, I think that policymakers at all levels, as, as well as just all of us regular walking around folks need to be cognizant of the importance and the consequences of creative destruction and that accommodations should be made for it as well as its fallout. As a matter of policy, I, again personally, don't think that we should be propping up dying industries which policymakers often get roped into doing. It slows the process and in the end makes the whole thing all a lot more painful to the people involved. Instead, I think that we should let those markets fall and dedicate those resources that might be used to propping them up instead to smoothing out the transition for the people involved in them. And again, that's that's labor, that's management, that's executives, customers, Everyone that industry touches. In the end, we want that market to die. Or that industry to die. Not the people working in it. Schumpeter's assertion that this is a natural process is right. And as such, we shouldn't try to prevent it. Because we really do want the benefits that come from it. We need to be prepared for the results. Good and bad. And know that eventually, the process will leave our economy stronger for having gone through it. With that knowledge, we can truly sit back and sing along with... And that's our show. As always, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, uh, come and join us on the Facebook group. Uh, You can search it. 
uh, by the title or uh, simply click on the link in the show notes uh, for this episode. And uh, come on, leave a comment, leave a question, leave a topic you want me to cover in a future episode. Uh, if you are not a Facebook user, you can always email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, no punctuation. Thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. If you're liking what you hear, uh, please take a minute and throw me that five-star rating on iTunes. If you're not liking what you hear, uh, you know, just keep that to yourself. That's fine. Uh, But yeah, uh, thanks to all of you who have uh, rated the podcast and all of you who have taken the time to uh, write a review. Always happy to... Uh, see what you think and see what you think I can improve on. Uh, with that, thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week with another chapter from the Wealth of Nations and then back in two weeks for another topic episode. With that, I'm Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.